Amen. Those who were far off have been brought near in Christ. Those who were enemies have been made to be his friends. And that is the great joy of what we will consider today, the confidence that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, if you have a Bible open to chapter 2 of 1 John, we'll look at verses 28 and 29 this morning and consider again the idea of confidence in Christ. Um, John instructs us here as to the importance of right knowledge and right living as it pertains to standing before the Lord in his judgment. He, he tells us how we are able to stand before Christ in confidence by knowing the right things and living the right things and abiding in the Savior. This passage is a bit of a, a transitional passage in John's epistle. He's been writing about abiding in Christ and not loving the world and holding to the truth and being separated and called out from the world. And now he wants to write about the return of Christ. He'll spend a, a few paragraphs talking about when Christ comes back. And, and to do that, he bridges the gap a little bit in verses 28 and 29 and, and ties together the ideas of abiding in Christ and standing with confidence in his return. So as we read our text, I want to give a little context on either side. So we'll read uh, verse 26 through chapter 3, verse 3. So let's stand together, if you're able, as we give attention to the reading of Scripture. 1 John chapter 2, again, our focus is verses 28 and 29, but we'll read uh, verse 26 through chapter 3, verse 3. This is holy, inerrant, inspired Scripture, God's Word to His people. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But his anointing teaches you about all things, and it's true, and it's not a lie. Just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, we are now children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. You may be seated. Would you join me now and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you and we give you all honor and all praise and all glory. For you and you alone are worthy to receive glory. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the sovereign ruler over all creation. You created the world. You have established your rule over your creation. You work all things together according to 
the good purpose of your will for our eternal good and for your eternal glory. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that submit ourselves, our lives, all that we have to your great strength and your great plan. Lord, I pray that we would understand that we are but vessels in the master's hands. You are the potter, we are the clay. And you work all things together to mold us into that which you would have us to be. Lord, I pray as we come to your word that we would come with humbled and pure hearts. Lord, help each one here to put away sin and to give full, devoted attention to your word. Lord, it's so easy to take this opportunity for granted to not, um, not come prepared to worship, to not come prepared to hear your word. It's easy to allow our minds to wander. It's easy to be weighed down by the things, the difficulties, the circumstances of our lives. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us to give all the attention that we ought your word. Pray, Lord, that we would understand that your word is true and that it's through your word that you sanctify your people. It's through your word that you conform us to the image of your son. And I pray, God, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Lord, I pray, perhaps above all, that you would show us Christ pray that we would have but a glimpse of the glory and the righteousness and the greatness of our Savior. May we understand the price that was paid for our redemption. May we understand the call to faith and repentance that either we come in faith and repentance and we have the eternal hope of heaven or we reject Christ we remain in our sin, and we will face condemnation in hell for all eternity. Lord, would you stamp eternity upon our eyes today? Would you lift our gaze from the present things of life and help us to understand the eternal weight of glory that comes to those who are in Christ? Lord, our hearts and our minds are feeble and frail and weak. And we ask that you would accomplish all that you intend to do by the powerful working of your Holy Spirit. Pray that your Spirit would empower the words that are spoken. Pray that your Spirit would empower our ears and our minds and our hearts to receive and to apply the truth. Lord, I pray that you would transform our lives. Pray that we would see Christ in his righteousness and that we would willingly forsake all things to the express end of following Christ. And we take up our crosses and follow him, denying ourselves, putting on the same mind of humility that Christ displayed. 
pray that you would conform us to the image of your Son by your Spirit and for your glory. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you guys may have been able to pick up by now, I've picked up some type of um, cold or, or something the last few days, so I'm going to see if I'm able to power through vocally, and if not, maybe Nick will just turn the, the volume up if needed. But 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 10, it, it's again a, a new section, and John is focusing on how we ought to live in light of the imminent return of Christ. Jesus was clear. He said, no one knows the day nor the hour of his return. And John makes it very clear that this should cause in us a sober recognition. It should cause a sober lifestyle, a sober response, because Christ will return and we will stand before him and he will judge all men. And so as we live in light of the return of Christ, John instructs us exactly how we ought to live and how we ought to think. We need to live in light of the fact that we will stand before the judgment seat, the judgment throne of the Lord God Almighty. And we understand from the text that this can be a day of shame, a day of embarrassment, a day of condemnation and just judgment where we will be sent to hell for all eternity, or it can be a day of hope, a day of joy, a day where the Lord says to us, enter into the rest of your master. And dear friend, if you've walked through any difficulty in life, you understand the desire to hear those words, enter into the rest and the joy and the glory of the master. John draws us so practically back to the Christian life. He draws us back to the Christian's hope and how our walking with Christ should cause joy. It should be done from joy. We should have a spirit that longs to walk with and to know and to obey our Savior. And the joy in all of this comes because we know that as we walk with Christ, we stand before him with confidence. We stand before him with his righteousness covering the filthy rags of the sin of our lives. If your confidence in judgment is anything but the righteousness of Christ, your confidence in judgment will lead to this shame and this lament and this condemnation that John writes of. Our lives should evidence our being conformed to Christ. Our lives should evidence that we're clothed in His righteousness, and we do that by walking in a way that's empowered by His Holy Spirit. So to guide our time through the text today, I'm going to give you kind of a thesis statement that will also serve as an outline for, for how we're going to consider the text. So this is our purpose, and this is the path we're going to follow to, to reach and to achieve that purpose. To be confident in the return of Christ, we must be conscious of the righteousness of Christ and conforming to the rule of Christ. Say that again, to be confident at the return of Christ, we must be conscious, we must understand the righteousness of Christ, and we must be being conformed to the rule and to the standard of Christ. So, so there's three C's in that. We, we need to be confident, we need to be conscious, and we need to be 
conforming. So confident at the return of Christ, look at verse 28. John says, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. When we think about the return of Christ, dear friends, our minds need to go to the idea of judgment. Yes, Christ returns to rule. He returns to reign. He returns to call his people to himself. But he also returns to judge, and that's where we need to be confident, else we will be at that judgment in his return, standing in shame. So what are the ways that Christ judges? Who does he judge? What are the possible judgments that he may render? There's two main judgments we need to consider, and and then we'll kind of focus in, I think, on the one that, that is really in John's mind as he writes here. There's the eternal and final judgment of Christ. In John chapter 5, verses 22 and 27, Jesus says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the Son. And the Father gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus Christ has the authority to render the final eternal judgment. Paul repeated that in Acts 17, verse 31. He said, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man that he has appointed. That man, of course, is his son. The Father has appointed a day that he will judge through the person and according to the work of the Son. So this is the eternally separating judgment, the the separating the weak from the tares, the the good from the bad, the righteous from the unrighteous, the, the, the repentant, from the sinners. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 25. I'm going to read a few verses in this section. Matthew 25, um, verses 31 through 46. If you turn there, you can kind of glance and pick up some of the in-between. And I just want to read a few verses as Jesus speaks about his own judgment. He speaks about how he will judge, what he will judge. Verse 31 through verse 34, Matthew 25. Jesus said, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of of the world. And drop down to verse 41 and verse 46. And then Jesus continues, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the judgment of Christ. He will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Come and enter into the rest, enter into the joy of your master. To the goats, to those on his left, depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire, eternal separation, eternal punishment. And now if you've turned to this passage, you've kind of glanced through this, and you know what separates the two. 
What separates these two groups is love. It's those that loved the Lord and proved that love for the Lord by loving others. He said, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. They showed love to Christ by loving the least of these. Those who he cast out when I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. And when I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. When I had no clothes, you did not clothe me. So what separates this eternal judgment is love. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Or do you walk in this wickedness of self-love, self-consumption, and unrighteousness? That is what separates this eternal judgment. Do you love the Lord, or do you love yourself and love your sin? Now, we can keep a balance in that. John 5, verse 24, so we talked about verses 22 and 27. Verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into the judgment, but is passed from death into life. The divine division at the final judgment comes down to this simple fact. Did you believe in God? Did you believe in his son, Jesus Christ? Did, did that belief evidence itself in your life by a change of direction? Not just that you give mental assent to Jesus as the Son of God, but that you come to Him and rest in Him and throw your life upon Him as your Savior. That is what divides eternity. Our message, we're thinking about evangelism this month, our message ought to be as simple as repent and believe and love the Lord your God with all your heart. But dear friend, the message also ought to be sobering, that if you don't repent and believe and give your life to the Lord, you will experience the eternal fire forever and ever. So how do you preach Christ? Do you preach with that clarity and with that boldness? Or do you cower down? Do you become ashamed? Do you try to soften the message a little bit so you may earn an extended hearing with your audience, we must preach the fullness of the gospel, the good news and the bad news, the eternal peace and joy, and the eternal punishment that comes to those who don't believe. But this is not the only judgment of Christ, and that's something we need to understand as believers. There's another judgment. It's what is known as the Bema judgment. It's where believers will answer to the Lord for everything that they've done. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, Paul says, we must all appear. He's writing to a church, a group of believers. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. We all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. MacArthur makes this um, clear in this explanation. He says, this judgment seat is the place where the Lord will sit to evaluate believers' lives for the purpose of giving them eternal rewards. So don't think just because you're in Christ that you've avoided judgment, that, that now you just get a, that pass into heaven. Yes, you are free in Christ 
There is no condemnation in him, but you will still answer for everything that you do. Everything you do in the body, whether good or bad. This judgment seat is the place where the judge would sit to render his official decisions. In the Olympic Games of the time, it's where the the athletes would go and and stand before that judgment seat to receive their, their wreath, their crown, their medal, their reward for their competing in the games. This is where you will give account to Christ for every thought, every word, and every action. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, He said, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. Every careless word. Have you ever spoken a careless word? Have you ever spoken without thinking, without considering the eternal ramifications of what you said? Have you ever let your mind just think and wonder about things that you shouldn't think about without considering the eternal ramifications? Jesus says, for every thought, for every word, for every action, you will give an account. Judgment should be both fearful and hopeful. It's fearful because you understand you will account for everything that you've said and everything that you've done. Any time wasted, any action that you should not have taken, any word of slander, any inappropriate look, any sin you have committed, any time that you've been unfaithful to Christ, you will answer for that. But the judgment should also be hopeful because there's no condemnation for those in Christ. And so we need to live in a way that, that we're aware of both of those aspects. We need to be diligent to show ourselves to be approved before the Lord but we never need to rest upon what we can do and what we can accomplish because it's all done and accomplished in Christ. So those are the two main judgments. And so then the question we need to ask is, which one is John referring to? Or, or is he talking about both, perhaps? And I, and I think based on the context, really what he's talking about is that final and eternal judgment. He says that we must abide in Christ. So let, let the context kind of guide your, your thoughts here. He talks about abiding in Christ. If you abide in Christ, you're in him. If you don't abide in him, you're not in him. So so it's that separation between those who are in Christ or not in Christ. He talks about being righteous, and and those who walk in righteousness, those who practice righteousness, are born of God. Either you're born of God or you are still of your father, the devil. So what is John talking about? It's the eternal separating judgment. It's the final judgment of Christ through which you're either permitted into heaven because you're in Christ or you're condemned to hell because you've died in your sins. So thinking about this judgment, I want to think about what John says. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, when we come to this judgment, we may have confidence. We may have confidence. Why do we have confidence? Because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Come with boldness. Come with confidence. 
Hebrews 10, 19 says, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ. It's not by your merit, it's by his blood. You come before the throne as a saint, a holy, called out one, one who is washed in the precious soul-cleansing blood of Christ, and therefore you come boldly with confident hope that he will say, yes, well done, enter into the kingdom because I know you, you are washed in your mind and entered the joy and rest of your master. It's not because of anything you've done. It's because you have a great high priest. Dear friend, we should come before the Lord with great confidence. Think about what John wrote at the beginning of chapter 2. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. You come with confidence because you've got an advocate. But dear friend, don't let that allow you to be lazy in your sanctification. Your goal should be to come before this judgment of Christ as a mature saint, one who has done and accomplished much for his glory, one who has borne much fruit. But this confidence, though that is what we strive for, this confidence is for every single saint, every single soul who is washed in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. You come with this confidence. But what's the flip side? John talks about it. He says he's writing this. He wants them to abide in Christ so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now, this will be a little bit of an exercise in futility, but I want you to, if, if you will, allow your minds to follow this idea, this illustration, a little bit for a moment. Just think about standing before the pure, holy, righteous, sinless God, because one day you will. So think about that. He is perfect, righteous in all things. He sees all things. He knows all things. He knows the deepest, darkest depths of your sinful heart. And imagine standing before that holy God, covered in the mud and the muck and the dirt and the ugliness of your sin. Because that's how you'll stand before him if you're not in Christ. If you stand before him with nothing to cover or veil the ugliness of your sin, what is going to be your response? Consider Adam and Eve, right? They were in the garden. The, the scripture tells us that they were unclothed and yet they were unashamed and then they sinned. And what did they do? They went and hid themselves. And then they went and covered themselves. They tried to veil what they had done because they were ashamed. Because the wickedness of their sin was fully before the Lord. If you go to stand before the Lord in his judgment without the righteousness of Christ covering over your sin, you will shrink away. You will be ashamed. You will surely wish in that day that you had come to Christ for salvation when faith and repentance, and yet it will be too late. Today is the day of salvation. So these are the two options. Either you stand with confidence because you're in Christ, because you're 
washed by his blood and clothed with his righteousness, or you come before the judgment of the Lord in shame because your sin is readily available, readily seen by you and by the Lord, and you know that his wrath is coming down upon you. Obviously, we'd want to fall in the first category. and When we're just sitting here thinking about it, we say, yes, I want to be in Christ. I want to be confident when he comes. I don't want to be ashamed because of my sin. I want to be confident that I am in Christ. You say, okay, well, how do I do that? The rest of the passage will outline for us a couple simple ideas, not simple in practice, but a couple simple ideas for how we must live, what we must seek to know in order to be confident at the return of Christ. Verse 29, the first part of the verse, we want to think about the idea of being conscious of the righteousness of Christ. We need to understand and think about the righteousness of Christ. Look at the first part of the verse. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous. Seven simple words. If you know that he is righteous. But in these seven words is the key to salvation. The righteousness of Christ is your only hope. If you know that he was only kind of righteous, then you don't have a savior and your faith is in vain and you are of all people most to be pitied. The outworking and the hope of our salvation is that we know that he is righteous. Jesus, the son of Mary, the incarnate one, the Son of God, fully righteous in every action, every thought, every deed. Let's just consider a few scriptures that show and describe Christ's righteousness. Hebrews 1, chapter 3. He is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus in the flesh was the exact representation, the exact imprint of the Father's nature. Perfect, holy, righteous in every way. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, Paul says that he is the image of God. He, he is God in the flesh for us to see, for us to know. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In Christ, the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form. The fullness of God's righteousness, the full perfection, the eternal holiness, all of that was wrapped into the person of Jesus. Think about what John had witnessed, this beloved apostle of Christ. He had seen that Jesus was honest, that he was always kind, that he was gentle in his speech, that he was patient when he was wronged, and that he never returned insult for insult. John had walked with Jesus for these three years of his earthly ministry, and he had seen the perfection of the Savior up close. And he says, if you know that he is righteous, because, oh, by the way, I do know. I've seen it. I've walked with him. about how Jesus displayed that patient, shepherding love to his disciples. Consider Peter, that, that, that quick-to-speak, sometimes arrogant and brash disciple 
who, who turned away from Jesus when he was arrested and going to the cross, and yet Jesus showed him this patient, shepherding love when he restored him and recommissioned him to ministry. And then Peter turns around and writes and calls under shepherds and, and all saints to that same exact love. When our Lord could have reacted in displeasure, in impatience, or in anger to his disciples or to other people, everyone saw nothing but humility, and nothing but a desire to please and honor and do the will of his Father. You know, think about that in light of parenting, and really in everything of our lives. In parenting, when, when that discipline is required for your children because they have broken the rules and they need it to be pointed to Christ and corrected for their behavior, it should always be done in a way that imitates this, this patient, long-suffering example of Christ. And, and that applies to all of our relationships. When a brother or sister needs to be corrected because they've walked into or fallen into sin, it needs to be with this patient, loving truthful example of Christ. You know, Jesus said in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That is righteous living and righteous behavior on display. True righteousness is finding your nourishment, finding your satisfaction and your pleasure, and doing the will and the work of your Father. If you know that Christ is righteous, if you want to stand before the Lord with confidence and judgment, you need to know that Christ is righteous. The righteousness of Jesus could be really concisely described by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is righteousness in action. That is the Spirit of God in action being lived out through us. We need to think about this righteousness of Christ carefully because he's not some distant, far-off being that calls us to imitate something that he's never actually done before. Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. On one hand, that ought to be the most comforting thing you can read in Scripture. That you have a great high priest who knows your frame. He knows your weaknesses. He's experienced temptation, maybe not exactly as we do because he was deity in the flesh, but he has experienced our weaknesses. He knows the temptations that will attack you. And he knows that there must be strength to overcome that. The opposite side of the coin, though, from that comfort is that Jesus knows our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet he was holy, perfect, without sin. So just as we become comforted and confident because Christ has experienced temptation, we must also remember that he proved to us that someone in the flesh can overcome sin. And it's by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and resisting temptation. You know, as we press one another onward in the Christian life and in the Christian walk, this should be our goal. As Paul said, you, you tell one another, follow me as I follow Christ. It's not just follow me. 
Follow me as I follow Christ. You're always pointing to Christ. You're always considering his example. You're always striving after something much higher than anything that another human could accomplish. If it's ever follow me or or follow this brother or, or this sister, you're missing the point. It's follow this person because they follow Christ and they point you to Christ. So before we leave this, Let me just condense this into a single, maybe, exhortation and encouragement. We need to seek to know Christ. We need to know his example. We need to know his person. We need to know his righteousness. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Friends, we need not allow ourselves to become complacent with our knowledge and relationship and understand relationship with an understanding of the Lord. We we don't need to become content with any level of understanding of who God is or what He accomplishes. There's always more righteousness to see and to know. There's always more glory of the Lord to be revealed, and we need to seek to know Him. We need to seek Him earnestly. If you would stand with confidence when He returns. It needs to be because you have sought to know all of him that you're able to know. What keeps a saint growing, if you've walked with the Lord for many years, or if you're just beginning your walk with the Lord, what will keep you growing is an insatiable desire to know more of your Savior. If you ever think that you've learned enough, If you ever think that you know him enough, if you ever lose the desire to know him more, you are on a pathway into sin and temptation, and you need to repent, and you need to come back to the Lord. So we set out with the idea and the goal of being confident in the return of Christ. We said to do that, we need to be conscious of his righteousness and conforming our lives to his rule or to a standard. And so now let's look at that last part of the statement, conforming to the rule of Christ, the end of verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. We'd also look back at verse 29, the beginning of verse 29. Now little children abide in him. That's what chapter 2 has been about. That's why this is kind of transitional because John is moving from the idea of abiding in Christ to looking at this return of Christ. And since we've talked a lot about abiding in Christ, I don't want to belabor the point today, but I do want to point out to you that this is important. This is the first exhortation, abiding in Christ, that John gives as he talks about being confident in the judgment. It says, my little children, abide in in him. And if you do that, when he appears, you'll stand before him with confidence. And this should make sense. Christ's return is unknown. We don't know when he comes. And and so the only way to be confident in that return is that you're always abiding in him. You're always living for him. If, If you ever cease to abide in him and you walk and wander off into sin, how then will you be confident in his return? You won't be. The 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 branch that abides in the vine is the branch that's confident at the return of Christ. 
To be confident, your life must be consumed with serving and honoring Him. If you would be confident at the return of Christ, you must let your life be consumed with honoring and serving the Lord. A sign of spiritual growth, growth is having an increasing desire for the return of Christ. If you walk through the Christian life and you don't more and more and more look for and long for the return of Christ, more and more desire to go and be with your Savior, you're not growing in Him because as you grow in Him, you want to be with Him. You want to put off the flesh. You don't want to struggle with sin and with sorrow. You want to go to heaven. You want Christ to return and to make all things perfect. Do you long for the return of Christ? Or do you enjoy this life and the things of this life too much to long for the return of Christ? Pressing into verse 29 then. You know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. This is where the rubber meets the road. You, must, you, you might affirm the righteousness of Christ. You might say, yes, I understand his commands. I understand his holy standard. But what is the practice of your life? What truly marks your character? You know, I had an old um, um, baseball coach in high school that talked about character being the way that you live when people don't see you. What marks your life privately? What marks your thoughts when you're alone? What marks your actions when you could go and do whatever you want and nobody except the Lord would ever know? Are you striving to be holy in all your behavior just as the Lord who called you is holy? Do you strive to prepare your mind for action, to keep sober in spirit, and to fix your mind fully on the grace that has been revealed in Christ and will be revealed in Christ? And that comes from 1 Peter 1, sticking with that line of thought. Are you being conformed to the lust of your flesh, or do you live as an obedient child of the Lord? That's a high-level kind of generic call to holiness. What does your life look like in the day-to-day? What term does John use here? You know that everyone who also practices righteousness, lives according to righteousness, makes it the daily practice of their lives. Do you make it a practice to study the Lord's Word for the express purpose and end of being conformed to His image and being shown your sin and repenting of your sin and being made more like Christ. Husbands, do you love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? Wives, do you submit to your husbands as unto the Lord? Friends, do we live together in mutual submission to one another as we submit to the Lord, showing a love for and a respect for and a mutual honor for one another? Men, how do you speak to your wives? Do you show her the gentleness and the patience and the love that Jesus displayed? One mark of biblical headship, and there's a lot going, a lot discussed in the world today, 
about headship and authority in the home and in a marriage. One mark of, of strong biblical headship is gentle, selfless service. If you want to lead your home well, men, you need to do it in gentleness and in selflessness. Women, are you workers in your home? Are you keepers of your home? Does the order of your home, and this goes for husband and wife, does the order of your home reflect the order of the Lord? Do you pursue discipline in your life for the sake of godliness? Disciplining your physical body has some profit for this present life, but it does nothing for the life to come. Do you discipline yourself for the sake of godly living? Do you cut off the arm of the flesh? Do you make sacrifices so you don't fall to temptation? Parents, are you gentle and yet disciplined in the rearing and raising of your children? Do you put the truth before them? Do you have clear instructions for the expected behavior and then give them proper discipline when they don't obey? We have teenagers and young adults in the room. Are you striving to live a life that's separate from the world? Or do you strive to live in such a way that you get as close to worldly things as possible, maybe without following into temptation? Or maybe you just run headlong into sin because you love your sin more than you love your Savior. What do you do with social media? And this can go for everyone, but especially young people. Is it a mind-numbing activity that allows you to take your mind off of whatever it is you don't want to think about? Probably the guilt of your sin and your need for repentance? Do you use social media to escape from life? Do you use it to further the lust of your flesh? Again, for all of us, I think especially our younger generation, do you spend more time with a screen in front of your face or with your Bible open or on your knees before the Lord in prayer? Friends, we pursue what we love. If you can't find time to, to turn the TV off or to put your phone away or to get off the computer or to put away whatever activity it might be, to get into the Lord's Word, to commune with your God, are you really loving Him? Are you really walking with Him? Are you really devoted to Him? Are you really practicing righteousness? Men, how are you known in the workplace? Do your coworkers, do your employees, do your customers know you as a godly man who loves the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you known as a proclaimer of the gospel? Or do you constantly give in to the temptation to laugh at or to participate in the the crude and coarse joking and the sinful lifestyle of those around you? Again, for all of us, do you fit in with the world or do you stand out for Christ? Do you practice righteousness or do you dabble in righteousness with a foot maybe in the kingdom of God, thinking in the kingdom of God, and a foot in the world? If you're straddling that line, you're all in on the world. Ladies, do you 
show the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. That doesn't mean just in your home, in the workplace. Perhaps you work outside the home or in the grocery store or in any of your interactions. Do you show this imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit? Are you everything but gentle and quiet and holy? Do you practice righteousness or do you live according to your flesh? Friends, this should not feel harsh or over the top or legalistic. This call to holiness does not mean that we should be solemn and sullen and downcast. You can pursue holiness with joy, with happiness, but you only will do that when your desire is to please the Lord. If you want the things of the world, it is going to be a drag to serve the Lord because you're called out from the world. You can't pursue the things of the world. You must pursue that which honors the Lord. The way you live matters. The practice of your life, which is the overflow of your heart, is what allows you to stand before the Lord with confidence. You may be ignorant, and you may live the life of a devil and think you're going to stand before the Lord in confidence, but you're not. Because those who practice righteousness are born of God. And the opposite of that is true as well. Those who don't practice righteousness are not born of the Father. Take account of your life. And I don't mean on your best day. I also don't mean on your worst day. Take account of your life every single day, in every single season. Do you practice righteousness because you're born of God? Are you conforming in your life to the righteous rule of Christ? Do you live according to the lust of the flesh? Again, because you're of your father, the devil. What marks your life? Wrap up here. If you want to have confidence at the return of Christ... If you look around the world, you see things going from bad to worse to worse to worse. And and, uh, we think and we know from Scripture that means that He is coming soon. If you want to stand with confidence at the return of Christ, you need to examine your life. You need to practice righteousness. You need to be conformed to the standard and the rule of Christ. You need to abide in Him and walk according to the power of of his Holy Spirit. Steve Lawson writes, the cost of following Christ comes at a high price. It will require a life of self-denial, death to self, submission to Christ, sacrifice for his kingdom, adversity in life, tribulation for your faith, rejection from your friends, persecution from the world, and maybe even martyrdom. Lawson continues, salvation is entirely free, but receiving it will cost you everything. Dear friend, salvation is free. You come to Christ in faith and repentance, and you turn from your sin, and you're clothed in his righteousness, forgiven because he bore your debt at the cross. 
and you come to him and you receive that free gift. And then you stand in confidence before the judgment throne because you know that you are his. But to receive that gift will cost you everything. You must take up your cross daily and follow Christ. You must follow him fully. You must follow him with all that you have. You must walk by the Spirit so that you don't carry out the desires of the flesh. May our hearts and our minds receive the Lord's word. And may we apply it for the sake of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and its truth. And I pray that it would instruct us. I pray that you would make it clear to us. I pray that you would reveal sin to us and help us to walk then in a way that is pleasing before you. Lord, more than anything, I pray that we would understand that there indeed comes a return of Christ in which he will judge the world. He will separate the sheep from the goats. He'll separate the wheat and the tares. He'll separate the righteous and the unrighteous. May we understand that that judgment comes. May we live in light of it. May we, Lord, stand on that judgment in confidence because we're washed in Christ, clothed with his righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would grant us to repent of our sins, to be sanctified by your truth, to walk by the Spirit for the glory of your name. Pray that Christ would receive the glory that he deserves from his bride. And we ask this in his name. Amen.